I was reading an illustration kind of funny. Today I'm in Ephesians chapter 4. And let me just say, about a month ago, three or four weeks ago, I had planned on preaching this. And if you recall, I got up and said I just couldn't preach it. It wasn't the right time for some reason. The Lord just kind of guided me elsewhere and I preached something else. So here today I'm preaching something I thought was what we needed uh, three and a half, I guess four weeks ago. And uh, really I think it's perfect for today by God's design. But this is a funny story. Two men met on a bridge. And uh, one said to the other, uh, do you believe in God? He, he said, I do. And he said, that's awesome. We have that in common. And he said, well, let me ask you, are you, uh, 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 you know, a Christian or a Jew? He said, I'm a Christian. He got more excited. He said, what a coincidence. Are you Protestant or Catholic? He said, I'm Protestant. He said, are, are you Baptist or Anglican? He said, I'm Baptist. And the guy got more and more excited. And he said, are you Southern Baptist or independent? He said, he said I'm independent. The guy got so excited. I'm with a guy who's so much like me. He said, are you premillennial or premillennial? He said, I am. And the guy's just, I mean, he's ecstatic. And he says, are you pre-trib rapture or mid-trib? The guy said, I'm mid-trib. He pushed him off the bridge. He said, you're a heretic. You have to die. Now, that's a stupid illustration. I thought that's worth reading. Because so many times in our churches, we fight over things that aren't really important, you know? And that's why I guess someone said we have 10 Baptists or 10 churches on this road. I've preached on three of, I preached at three of them. And uh, I've preached at a lot of churches in this area. It's been funny. I've preached at so many churches in this area, Lupton Drive and Parkway and Park City and, and go on down the list, Temple Baptist. And it's funny because I'll go to church and I see someone I thought, didn't I they weren't here last time I preached here. Weren't they over at that other church? And so it's good to know people. And I have people <laughs> that kind of make the circuit. And, and it's okay if you have to leave a church. I understand that. But the best thing is to have unity, to have grace and mercy and forgive and move forward. You know, one of the hardest things to do as a pastor is to confront somebody and say, hey, but you have to do it in love. And then you have to forgive and forget and move on. And uh, I hope that we just strive for unity here and that we don't push someone off a bridge because they don't agree with some little thing that we think is vitally important. But we're looking at Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. And this morning I'm going to do something a little bit different. When you find Ephesians 4, stand with me. And we're going to read responsively. Years ago in First Baptist Church of Okemos, I heard someone, my pastor would read responsively. And just a different way of doing it. I will read verse 1, and together we'll all read verse 2, and every other verse will do the same thing. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called. Together. With all lowliness and meekness, with longsuffering, forbearing one another in love. Now, myself endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Together, there is one body and one Spirit, even as ye are called in one hope of your calling. Myself, our Lord, one Lord, one faith, one baptism together, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. But unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Let's bow for prayer. God bless us. Lord, we need you every hour. This morning we're asking for the Holy Spirit to help me say the exact 
words that are needed here. And that's been my prayer all week long as I've gone over my sermon over and over to say the right words. And Lord, we know the Holy Spirit will speak to each of us in a unique and special way. And I just pray we'll listen to his voice and deal with whatever it is in our lives that need to be dealt with. Lord, whether it be to confess sin or to encourage somebody or to hug someone's neck to apologize or to uh, just, just praise you that we'll do what we need to do and be obedient to you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Now, Ephesus was the capital city of the province in Asia, and it, was the, it had a quarter of a million people at the time Paul wrote this book. And we know that it was the main banking center of all Asia Minor. Now, Asia Minor is today Turkey. So you now understand about where Ephesus was. We know that Paul was in prison when he wrote this epistle from 60 to 64 AD, somewhere in those four years he wrote this. He went there on a second missionary journey with Aquila and Priscilla. And then on his third journey, he went back, third missionary journey, and he stayed three years. He had to eventually leave because his preaching was causing problems at the temple of Diana. You know, there were prostitutes there that sold themselves as they were submissive to the gods of the temple of Diana. And there were also silversmiths that made shrines, little gods that they could put at the temple for people to worship. And Paul was preaching against idolatry and immorality and all these things, and that made them angry. In fact, the silversmiths caused a great riot, and uh, Paul had to leave. And, and later, when he came to meet with the elders of the churches, he met 35 miles away in a town called Miletus. Now, we find Ephesians being a book that deals with the, uh, several themes. First of all, Ephesians teaches us that we're in Christ and where Colossians teaches us that Christ is in us. The book of Colossians deals with grace, Philippians with gratitude, and Ephesians deals with glory. So today we're going to look at uh, these verses uh, as we just see what the Lord has to say. I used to always start out by saying, let's take a look in the book for a walk in the world. And then I heard one of our former youth pastors say that on Moody. I said, I know where he got that. That was a saying I used for years but I, I don't use that all the time anymore, but we're going to do that this morning. Take a look in the book for a walk in the world. This is God's holy word. We know that, and we thank him for that. Anyway, uh, we know Paul in chapter 3, verse 14, had just finished uh, begging God for man's sake. He said, for this cause I bow my knees. Then in this chapter, chapter 4, he, he beseeches us believers to live for God's sake. He's pointing out the importance of living right while fulfilling their calling. In Philippians, we had a high calling. One day we may look at that. In 2 Timothy, Paul talks about a holy calling. In Hebrews, he talks about a heavenly calling. And Ephesians is divided right down the middle. And maybe one day we'll preach through the book. It depends on how long I'm here, but that would be something I would want to do. We know the first three chapters dealt with our high position in Christ. You know, we're part of the heavenlies. Our citizenship is up there, not down here. We know the last three chapters deal with our lowly walk. The first three chapters teach doctrine. These last three teach duty. The first three had an issue or issued a theology statement. These last three issue a mission statement. The first three dealt with beliefs. These last three chapters deal with behavior. So we're going to look at our behavior. 
Today's churches minimize the importance of doctrine. In fact, I preached uh, here on your homecoming from the Gospels. Then I preached a couple times from the Old Testament. Today I'm preaching from the epistles. Totally different type of preaching, a different application, but it's all God's Word. The epistles deals with the little details of our faith and how to live right, and it's wonderful scripture. Hosea 4, 6, Hosea said, My people are destroyed because of the lack of knowledge. Unfortunately, some of the dumbest people in ministry are Baptist. Some of the dumbest parishioners, church pews are filled with people who haven't studied Scripture and haven't learned Scripture. Now, you're wise people. I'm thankful for that. You know the fundamentals, but we still want to learn more, still want to grow more. And so that's why we're in the book of Ephesians this morning. We learn in verse 1 the importance of walking worthy, to walk worthy. Paul says, I therefore, now that connects this portion of Scripture to the previous. We know there weren't chapter divisions, so he says, I therefore, and he's referring to what was taught in chapter 3. And he calls himself the prisoner of the Lord. Literally, you could say the prisoner in the Lord or of the Lord. And it's interesting that he refers to himself that way several times in Scripture. He says in 2 Timothy 1.8, I'm the prisoner of the Lord. He said in chapter 3, verse 1, For this cause I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ. Now, this is kind of a deep thing, but it's genitive in the grammar, which means Christ caused him to be a prisoner. Isn't that interesting? Christ was involved in him being in prison. It was part of God's divine plan. Sometimes we lose sight of God's sovereignty and his control over us. Are you aware that God has you right where he wants you? Even if you did something dumb to find yourself in the place you are, it's still God's plan to now Work something for his eternal glory. You see, I don't like my job. Thank God for it. I don't like where I live. Thank God for it. Learn to be content. God is sovereign. He had Paul in prison for many reasons. Maybe to reach people for Christ. We know he was a great witness in prison earlier. Remember in Acts 16. The jailer got saved and baptized. Remember that story. Here he's inspired to write books. That's a pretty good reason to be in jail. I mean, Paul didn't do anything wrong, but he's persecuted, he's in prison, and he he realizes he's a prisoner, not of Rome, but of God. Isn't that interesting? I like the fact that we're also God's prisoners. We're also God's slaves. Did you know you were bought with a price? You are not your own. So learn to be content where you are and realize God knows right where you are and he can use you where you are and accept it. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. I'm here today by God's sovereign plan. A few years ago, or like more than a few, I left here almost 11 years ago. I came as an interim pastor, stayed two and a half years. Thought, wow, that was a rough tour. Uh, And they love me, don't get me wrong, but the church had a lot of issues. Now you have more unity. I think there's a great potential to go forward and to grow in Christ. And so we're thankful for that. But I thought I'd never be back here. And here I am. And and, and I'm going to love every minute of preaching and teaching. I won't love every minute of everything if something's difficult. It's not always what you look forward to. But we know that this is God's church. 
He has a plan. You are here this morning by his divine plan. This sermon today, I really would say message today, is by God's design plan. Isn't that interesting? And we think that we plan it all out. I think that I'm the reason we're preaching Ephesians, and yet it's God. You see, he's sovereign. He even puts the thoughts in my head when I'm preparing a message. Lord, what do I need to say? And he gives me the thoughts. So Paul says, I beseech you to walk worthy. Now, walking's a common theme in Ephesians. Remember, he says in verse 2, walk in lowliness. In chapter 4, verse 17, same chapter, he says, walk in, in uh, life. In 5.2, walk in love. In 5.8, walk in light. In 5.16, walk in legitimacy. He says, walk, 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 walk. What does he mean? Live right. That's what he means. People who are in a wheelchair are still walking for God. He's not talking about our physical walk. He says, walk worthy of the vocation or the calling by which you're called. And now he's going to talk about the conduct. It's not just the calling, it's the conduct. Just because someone's called to do something doesn't mean they're automatically good at their calling. Because their conduct is so vitally important. When someone says, I know God's called me to do something, I think that's wonderful. And then if their conduct is good, I'm really thankful that they know their calling requires a certain conduct. You know, just because you go to work every day doesn't mean you leave your testimony at home. Just because you come to church and we all, we're all hypocrites on Sunday. Yeah, we all come to Sunday, we look our best. I never look this good during the week. And not that I look good. But, you know, we get ready to ch for church and we put on our best smile and our best behavior. That's why it scares me when someone misbehaves at church. I'm thinking, how do they act at home? But we try to impress people with our best. God's not impressed. God sees our heart. And he looks on the heart. We look on the outward appearance. I've told you before, I'm just a rotten sinner that's been saved by grace. And I can identify with Paul in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. My heart is foolishly wicked and my mind is depraved. The only thing good in me is the Lord Jesus Christ who dwells in my life. And so we remember that, uh, to walk worthy. And then he gets specific. In this first three verses comprise one sentence in your Bible. And in verse 2, he begins to list four graces, or list four graces that will lead to unity. Remember verse 3, endeavoring to keep the unity? These four things in verse 2 will lead to unity. And what an awesome section of Scripture is. First of all, he says... To, to walk with all lowliness, lowliness. Walk totally, totally consumed with lowliness. Lowliness, in your Bible, the Greek word is translated two ways. Lowliness, you'll find that several times, and it's translated humble or humility. It's the same thing as humility. Lowliness and humility. He says, walk in lowliness. This really has to do with our state of being. Our, uh, we need to be timid of mind. I like Jesus' words in Matthew eleven twenty nine. He said, come unto me, all you that are labor and heavy laden, and, and I'll give you rest. And he goes on to say, I am meek and what? Lowly. Our Lord was lowly, meek and lowly. And then he says lowliness, which is also humility, and he says meekness, meekness. And of course, Jesus was also meek, meek and lowly. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, a scholar who's long gone, said, you're meek when you're finished with yourself. 
You are meek when you're finished with yourself. Meekness is not weakness. It's power under control. It's emptying yourself and allowing God to fill you. Now, the Greeks looked at meekness in a very negative way. Jesus comes along and the Greeks are very prevalent. And even in Rome, there's just so many Greeks there and they're still into all their brainiac things. They just think they're so sophisticated and superior and they look down on meekness. The Sadducees and Pharisees were never meek. They were always arrogant. They were aristocrats. They're the hierarchy of the city and they had their way in everything. And here comes Jesus who's meek and lowly. Completely different than what humanity had expected. I mean, I think a lot of people, I know scripture tells us a lot of people wanted him to come in and take over the world. I mean, they cried, Hosanna, save us now. Hosanna, save us now. They weren't talking about spiritual salvation. They wanted deliverance from Rome. God had had Israel under dominance of other countries for hundreds of years because of their sin. And then they were scattered all over. And finally, in 1944, or 1948, excuse me, they began to come from 100 and some, 107 nations, I believe, to return home to their land. They still haven't accepted Jesus as Messiah, and they need to. But here we have, getting back to our, our meekness, the Greek word originally came from, we call this etymology, forget that word, but this that's, means the word had a history, how the word began. The word was first used to describe a medicine of the, of the early days of Greece, a medicine that calmed someone's spirit. And so that word started there and then developed and over time was used about a person's attitude, and then we find it in the fruit of the Spirit. What is the fruit of the Spirit? One of the, the ninefold fruit. Part of that is meekness. Meekness. And we, we know that uh, it, it means to uh, an inward grace that manifests itself in mildness and gentleness. Now that doesn't mean just because we act mild and gentle one day that we're fulfilling the fruit of the Spirit or letting the Lord have his way, because we can sometimes put on a front. When we need something, we're real nice to a cashier. And then we've got to wait in line after 10 people who cut in ahead of us. We're not very nice. So we're not fulfilling. We're not, we're not displaying the fruit of the Spirit because we're impatient and upset. If our lives are what they ought to be, this should be a consistent attitude from us, this meekness. Remember Moses is called meek. My son said the other day, Dad, Moses called himself weak. I don't know about that. I said, son, he was inspired to call himself weak. God told him to write that. Think of all the examples of meekness. Think of Mary, my God and my Savior. I'm a servant of the Lord. John the Baptist, remember, he said, I'm not even worthy to carry his sandals. I don't even deserve to carry his sandals. And think of Isaiah. Woe is me. I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. That's meekness. Recognizing that you are nothing but by God's grace. Paul, then look at chapter 3, verse 8 in your Bible. Paul calls himself, the. he says, I, I am the, I better read it or I'll have the grammar wrong. Unto me who am less than the least of all saints. Can you imagine that? I look at Paul and I'm like, wow, I don't deserve to carry Paul's sandals. And he says he's, the, he's less than the least of all saints. 
Remember, his name was Saul. He was pretty important. Probably part of the Sanhedrin, trained by Gamiel, brilliant man, highly educated, and yet he doesn't perceive himself that way. After he led Sergius Paulus to the Lord, he changed his name to Paul. Now, we don't know if that's why, but after leading Sergius Paulus to the Lord, he now goes by Paul. Paul means little. Little. And he says, I'm, the le I'm less than the least of saints. And then we know he says in, in Timothy, 2 Timothy, he says, I am the chief of sinners. I'm a chief, the chief of sinners. He says in Corinthians, I'm the least of the apostles. I mean... Are we willing to identify with Paul in that? I hope so. I look at Paul, here's a guy that wrote 13 or 14 books of the Bible. A guy who started 51 or 52 churches, history tells us. And he calls himself the least of the apostles? Less than the least of sinners? And the uh, least of saints and the chief of sinners? Do you get it? I mean, that's what it's all about. Realizing we are nothing but by the grace of God. Paul knew he was a saint. When you're saved, you're no longer called a sinner. In Scripture, you're called a saint. Paul knew that. He understood his position in Christ. He tells us all about that in his epistles. But when he considered himself, looked at his own life, his sinful nature, his past mistakes, and the struggles he had day in and day out, that's why he could say, I'm less than the least of all saints. When we realize what we are, God can use us and fill us. So we have here lowliness and meekness. Then we have long-suffering and forbearing. Long-suffering has to do with circumstances. Mark that in your Bible. Circumstances. It's being patient during circumstances. It's having restraint. It's being slow to anger. <coughs> you know, circumstances can really mess our day up. But we know they're always by God's design. You know, my daughter had a bad battery the other day. And I thought, why is a battery bad in the middle of a day when it's 90-something degrees and I just showered? You ever, you ever ask those kind of questions? Yeah, years ago I was traveling to Nashville. I was going to speak up in Nashville. And uh, we got our old Delta 88. If you remember what those are, I know you're older than I am. But Delta 88... I don't even really make a Delta 88 anymore, but we packed that trunk full because we were going there and preaching there and then going further north. So we brought all kinds of, we even brought some bikes because we were heading on a long trip and we were going to stop in Nashville to preach. And so we're driving along and I had a blowout. And I thought, oh, great. Oh, great. Lord, why me? You don't ever think that way, do you? Well, sure you do. Sometimes you think God's picking on you. And I thought, well, I have the little kids in back. We can't stay here. I'm going to have to change the tire. I didn't have AAA. I didn't even make A's in school. Uh, I, I, I didn't have anything going for me except get out and um, empty that trunk. So you got to take the bikes off and the bike rack. And then you got to empty the trunk. And then you got to get down there and hope your spare has air. You know. So I get it out and I'm, I get the tire off, get the car jacked up, and it starts pouring I mean, it was pouring, pouring. I couldn't hardly see. It was just pouring down. My wife said, do you want me to get out and hold an umbrella? I said, sure. She said, there's no umbrella. <laughs> so it's just cats and dogs, and I'm changing this tire, and I finally get it on, get back in the car, and it stops raining almost as soon as I put that car in gear. I didn't have patience in circumstances. 
I, I wasn't fulfilling this long suffering. I was impatient and agitated. And then the word forbearing. Now where long suffering has to do with circumstances, forbearing has to do with people. Forbearing has to do with people. Putting up with one another. The Greek word is translated in 2 Timothy 4.3, endure, to endure. Now, if you ever want to check, when I say that, I, I'll sometimes show you, but get you a strong concordance and you can look it up and say, well, Brother Dan is telling us the right thing. And you'll see how a word's translated several ways. In fact, let, let's just look at this one time today. I have several like that, but I'll mention them. You can look them up later. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 3. And it says here, he uses the word endure. For the time shall come which they will not endure sound doctrine. That's the same word. Do you endure people? Do you, do you uh, have, uh, you know, are you, are you forbearing? Do you endure? Do you put up with people? Do you hold back your anger? I tell you, ministry, being a pastor would be easy if it weren't for the people. Because sometimes people can be challenging. Sometimes pastors can be challenging because we're people too. We're also people. Raising a family, rearing is the right word, rearing a family requires us to endure, to forbear. I have never thought of abandoning my kids, but I've thought of killing them. You know? I'm joking, you know that. Don't call the police, I'm not gonna hurt my kids. They're all bigger than me, not, not really, but they're all men now, you know, and one young lady. But the fact is, we have to learn to put up with people. People are special, that's a, another way of saying unique, and that's even a more polite way of saying people are sometimes weird. You don't know anybody weird, do you? We're all weird. To someone else, the weird one guy I think's weird thinks I'm weird. <laughs> and we have to be patient and forbear and hold back rather than be aggressive, mean-spirited, unforgiving. Now look at verse 3, because all that leads up to verse 3, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit. You need those four things, those four graces, to keep the unity of the Spirit. Unity is vitally important. Jesus, in John 17, his last prayer, he said, God, help them to be one. He's talking about future believers. He was praying for us to be one. Isn't that something? He's praying for future believers to be in unity, to be one. And so often we, we you know, we, 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 the Bible says, Amos says, you, if two can't agree, they can't walk together. The problem there is really that we can't agree to disagree on very small things. And no two of us in this church agree on everything. Did you know that? Did you know that? No two of us in this church agree on everything. We'd, it'd be hard to figure out all the things we disagree on, but I'm telling you, no two of us agree on anything. How do I know, Brother Dan? We'll get married. You ever had an argument in your marriage? Of course you have. Why? Because you disagreed. Do your kids ever argue? Do you ever argue with the kids? Of course. And, and that's why the, it's so important to strive for unity. He says, endeavoring, endeavoring. That word is translated diligent 
and 2 Timothy. We should be diligent to have unity in our homes, diligent to have unity in our church, striving, be working at it all the time. Let me say this. You're either a unifier or a divider. There's no in-between. You either go to people and try to get them to side with you against someone else. I was one of seven kids. I was a divider. I was a middle child, and I was going to find a way to make war some way or another. And my dad dealt with me plenty of times. He took the Board of Education and applied it to the seat of my britches. And he'd say, now stop causing trouble. You know, but we can't sometimes do that at work. But at work, are you a divider or a unifier? Do you, if someone comes up and says, oh, I don't like that, well, he, he doesn't do good, do you say to him, well, just pray for him or just try and encourage him? Or you say, I agree with you, he's a no good, he's a bum. What do you do? How you respond to someone who tries to cause disunity tells us a lot about your life. And at work, you should be the great unifier. You should cause unity. My mom caused unity in our home. I mean, there's nine of us at the table. You can imagine. And you can tell I was underfed. There wasn't enough food. And my mother would always say, now, 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 listen. And she would correct us. And when she needed dad, you know, he would get riled up. I told people, I never saw my mom angry in my entire life. My dad made up for it. And my mother was a great unifier, always saying, now you too, you need to hug or you need to, you know, I love that about my mom. One time we had one pork chop left. We all had our one pork chop and there was one extra pork chop on the table. And my dad said, well, I'll tell you what, we'll count to three and whoever grabs it can have it. And I don't know what my dad was thinking. But he said, one, two, three, and everybody went in. My brother Bob had his hand on the pork chop and I went in with my fork. And I stabbed my brother Bob in the hand. He was bleeding in four places. He got the pork chop. I got the hand. <laughs> don't stab the hand that feeds you. Isn't that a saying? No, it's don't bite the hand. Anyway, that way, I don't know what that has to do with anything. I just thought of my mom and I thought of sitting down at the family meal every night. But that has nothing to do with it. So just pretend you didn't hear that. No, I'm just joking. Look here at Colossians 3.14. Colossians 3.14. It says in Colossians 3.14. Well, and above all, these things put on charity, it means love, which is the bond of perfectness, or the bond of perfection. Now back to Ephesians 4, 4, or 4, 3. He says, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So those four things all together equal love. And if you really love your brother, you know, we, we, we use that word frequently and that we don't always mean it. I, I see athletes, love you, man, love you, man. And then I see them getting fistfights in the, in the, in the game, you know. And, you know, we, we, you don't have to look far to see all the problems in our society. Love is a word used to, to get what you want from someone, to manipulate someone. If we really are loving people, we will take these four graces and live by them and ask God to help us to learn to be forbearing and long-suffering and lowly and meek, the bond of peace. 
this is a great little story here. I think I've told you a lot of stories this morning. This is another good one, though, because I didn't write it. Charlie Brown. You may have seen the Charlie Brown Christmas, but the old generation remembers Charlie Brown. He was in the newspaper every week. Linus runs up to Charlie Brown and says, Charlie, I just saw the most unbelievable football game. What a comeback. The quarterback threw a perfect pass to the, to the receiver who ran all the way for a touchdown. The fans poured onto the field by the thousands, screaming and hugging and rolling around on the ground. It was just the most exciting thing. And Charlie Brown, good old Charlie Brown, says, but how did the other team feel? What am I going to say here? It's not all about winning. You may win an argument and lose a marriage partner. You may win an argument and lose a church member. You may win an argument and lose a job, may lose a child. It's not about winning. It's about coming together when you can't agree and loving each other as Christ would love us. I love that little poem, Lord, help me to live from day to day in such a self-forgetful way that even when I kneel to pray, my prayer shall be for others. You know by your prayer life what kind of a Christian you are. If you pray every day, God, give me, give me, give me, help me, help me, help me, that's all okay. But when you're not praying for others, you're self-centered even in your prayer life. Now notice here, in verses 4 through 6, seven elements of unity. Each one starts with the word one. One. That we may be one. Now notice the Trinity. We would pick up in verse 4. There's one Spirit. Verse 5, one Lord. Verse 6, one God and Father. The Trinity is there. But that's not what I'm emphasizing today. We pick up with verse for there is, those are italicized words, you understand that when I explained that the other night, there is one body, one body. What does that mean? Do you know we should never rejoice when another church suffers? If we get 30 people from a church that had a problem and 30 people come our way, we like to grow, but we should not rejoice or gloat in the fact that another church has a problem. Why? They're one body. Do you know you have brothers and sisters in Christ in Russia where my sister's a missionary? Do you know my sons who were in China all this time, one's a chaplain, they can't, chaplain, they can't go back because of the problems right now, and I'm praying they don't go back. But you know what? There are brothers and sisters in Christ over in the underground church that are your brothers and sisters in Christ. We don't want anyone to suffer in the, in the body of Christ. We, we want everyone to be blessed as a believer. We want every church to be blessed. While we want to grow, we don't want to grow because others are having problems and rejoice in that. We have to love one another and we're part of the body of Christ. Then he says one spirit. We'll talk about this more later. For by one spirit, we are all baptized into one body. Do you know that the spirit that's in you is also in me? The same spirit. The spirit of God is in each of us. And this morning he... He speaks to us all unique and different. Some of you are thinking one thing you got to deal with in your life, and others are thinking something totally different. That's how he works. But we have one spirit. We're placed into the body of Christ, baptized in the body of Christ by one spirit. This is symbolic baptism. That is symbolizing that you are a dying your old nature and raised again to walk in newness of life. That's symbolic. Just like circumcision to the Jew was symbolic of the fact that they were accepting the covenant and going to be obedient to the covenant. They got circumcised. 
When we do this, it says, I've already been saved. I was placed in the body of Christ. And now I want to say to those listening and observing that I'm going to identify with it. I'm going to live right. And, and we say, buried with him in baptism and raised to walk in newness of life. But the Spirit had already placed us in the body of Christ. One hope. Oh, one hope. That blessed hope. The word hope is not the word luck. It's not the word chance. It means confident expectation. I know Jesus is coming back. I don't have any doubt about it. I wish he'd come today. But he's coming again. That's my hope. And that's my confident expectation. What's that Greek word mean? That Greek word means confident expectation. Are you confident he's coming back? Say amen. amen. If you think it, he may come back, if we're lucky, or I hope he comes back in the sense of the worldly hope, no. The biblical word means that we can depend on it. We can count it. One day he's going to step out. We're going to call us home. We're going to meet him in the air. Can you imagine what that's going to be like? In the twinkling of an eye, we're meeting him in the air. The dead in Christ will rise first. My dad always said, I'd kind of like to live to, 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 to see the rapture. My dad's going to beat me to the Lord if the Lord comes today. Because a dead in Christ rise first. And we have to catch up. But he's coming again. He's coming again. One Lord. One master. One mediator. We're on the same verse. One Lord. Verse 4. Verse 5, one Lord, and we could say one mediator, one Savior, one Master, one way. There's only one way to heaven. Through the blood of Jesus Christ, there's no other way. No other Savior, no other mediator. One faith. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel how that Christ died according to the scriptures, that he was buried, he rose again. That's the gospel. And that's the only gospel that leads to the only faith and the only person who can save He's the only one that died on the cross for our sins. He's the only perfect lamb. He never sinned. He couldn't have sinned. He was impeccable because he was God in the flesh. We call that the deity. One baptism. We've explained that. <clears throat> and then lastly, he'll say in verse 7, or verse 6, excuse me, one God and Father. One God and Father. Deuteronomy says the Lord our God is one God. And we could emphasize here and say, He's the only true God. We do know there are other gods. Satan's the God of this world. Read Psalm 82, you'll realize there are other gods. I believe the fallen angels, the demons, are all gods. And, and out trying to deceive and walk in his angels of lights, they're just false gods and fallen demons, fallen angels. But the one true God... Now look at here in verse 6. Mark your Bible. A little detail here. One God and Father of all. Of all. Now, we want to explain what this means. Paul, in the context, is talking to believers. So the word all is referring to us, to believers. Years ago, Hollywood came out with a song. We are God's people. We are the world. And they sang and they were trying to create unity for some cause. And they were singing, we are all God's people. We're all God's children, they sang. And I said to myself, well, that's heresy, but what do you expect from Hollywood? We're not, we're not all God's children because we live in this world and we're born in this world. We're God's children because we're born again. The Bible says, ye are of your father, the devil. To the Pharisees, to the religious crowd. So we're not all God's children unless we're all believers. 
If you're here today and you don't know Jesus, you'll go to hell. God will say, I never knew you. And let me tell you something. God would never turn his back on his child. He'll never leave us nor forsake us. One God and Father. Notice it says, of all, above all, through all, in all. You could put the Trinity in there if you want to. I, I love the scripture, how the scripture says God's in us, Christ is in us, and the Spirit's in us. We don't have to wait. It's not a second work of grace to receive the Spirit. When you trust Jesus, you get the whole package. Amen. And then we wrap up with verse 7. But, in every, but unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. I love Ephesians 2.8. For by grace are you saved through faith. Not of yourselves. It's a what? Gift. Gift. And it says we're given a gift according to the measure of him. So in other words, grace is unlimited. It's unlimited. It's according to God, and he holds it all. Look at chapter 3 and verse 16. That he would grant you according to the riches of his glory. It's a lot of glory. Look at verse 20, the last line. According to the power that worketh in us. That's a lot of power. If we can get as much power that God has according to what he has, we're getting a lot of power. That's why we know we can do all things through Christ with strength in us. strengthens us because we have that unlimited power. <laughs> Ephesians 3.20, I love that verse. Since we're there, none to him that is able, able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we ask or imagine or even think. You think he has enough grace, glory, and power to bestow upon you? Absolutely he does. He's all-powerful. We have spiritual gifts in Scripture. We have gifted men. We also have the gift of grace, and I'm thankful for it. Are you walking? Are you living right? In lowliness, in meekness, forbearing, forbearing and long-suffering. Are you endeavoring to keep unity? Maybe you have a brother you could call today and say, I'm sorry, forgive me. Maybe you have a child, maybe a church member. Do the right thing, endeavor, be diligent about unity. Are you part of the body of Christ? Are you saved today? If you're not, you need to come forward this morning and say, I need Jesus. I, I'm a child of the devil. I want Jesus. Let me conclude with another story. I was up inside of Daisy for eight years and seven months. Every, G, every February, they'd vote me for another year. I was their part-time interim pastor for eight years and seven months. And I finally just had to just say I'm resigning. But they were wonderful people. And there was one guy there named Gary. And... Uh, I shouldn't have even given his name. I don't know if he'd watched the podcast, but Gary struggled. He was a little bit challenged. He would do some things that were kind of different. He'd maybe burp out loud in church and not even think about it. And people would all, but Gary was what everyone ought to be as far as meekness, as far as humility, as far as lowliness. He walked several miles to church three times a week, whether it was cold or raining or 
hot 90. He'd come up to the church soaking wet with sweat. His parents bought him a trailer when they left the area. And he had people live in his trailer, people who didn't have places to go. He'd give up his master bedroom to a family to live there, and he'd sleep on the couch. He'd come to church, he'd get his disability check, he'd go in the office and put $100 in the offering plate in the office. And I said, Gary, somebody could steal that. He'd say, well, if they need it more than I do, they can have it. And I'd say, but Gary, you know, <laughs> it's not how it works. But he was always encouraging and always faithful. And he had very little going for him. And I thought to myself, and one day I talked about him when I wasn't there. I said, I'm going to tell you who the best Christian in this church is. And everybody's eyes perked up. He's going to say me, they thought. I knew it wasn't going to be me. But they all maybe thought, and I said, Gary. And they all went, you mean, you mean him? Yep. He walked with lowliness and meekness. He cared about others more than himself. I, he wanted to do a brake job on my car for nothing. I wouldn't even let him do the brake job because I knew it wouldn't take money. I'm, I have a trouble receiving. That's one of my faults, and I wasn't going to let this guy do a brake job for nothing. That was my pride rearing up against his humility. I was probably wrong, and I guess I was wrong. I don't mean to confess my faults one to another, but I just did. Gary was what every Christian ought to be because he thought of other people. He did the best he could. Do you know whom, to whom much is given, much is required? If you are given a great amount of ability in life in some area, God expects you to serve him with it. He requires that of you, giving your best. So these four graces that lead to unity, to unity, do you have those? Are you going to strive to have those? Are you going to be obedient to the Spirit in all things? Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you for your word, Lord. Speak to hearts. Help folks that need to come and say, I want to strive for unity just to come and pray. Maybe those that want to pray for unity in their homes, their work, church, marriages, just come and pray. And Lord, if there's someone here that's not saved, I pray they'll come to receive you today as Lord and Savior. You paid the price. You own us. But if there's someone that's not part of your family, that this morning they'll come and say, I need to be saved. Bless now in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing.